Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I am thrilled to have John J. Pendergast back on the show. He's a spiritual teacher, author, psychotherapist, and retired adjunct professor of psychology who offers residential and online retreats. He's the author of In Touch, How to Tune into the Inner Guide of Your Body and Trust Yourself, and The Deep Heart, Our Portal to Presence. John, welcome to Conversations. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you again. Likewise. I always have this experience of just this calm when I'm with you that's infusive, I guess, if that's the word. Uh, and it, it just shows the many, many years that you've been practicing. We were talking earlier a little bit about your, your background and history, starting from very young and to where you are now with uh, your second book, The Deep Heart, Our Portal to Presence. I just love this book. Maybe you could give us a little background on your journey from the head to the heart. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, how to do it in five minutes, you know. Uh, one point I, I would say is, um, you know, it feels what began and felt like very much a personal journey um, has revealed itself to be universal. That is to say, it's something that we all, in our own way, um, embark on, knowingly or unknowingly. It has an archetypal feel to it. So, um, And it's ongoing. It's open-ended. Uh, even if there's a, a deep recognition of our true nature, um, <clears throat> as I've experienced, the transposition of that into our ordinary life, the deepening of it, the refining of it is open-ended. And, and it just leaves me with a feeling of simplicity and humility and gratitude for kind of the unfolding you know, beauty uh, and mystery of life. For So I, when I talk about it, I just come back to gratitude mm. and how, how this happened, you know, how, how the so-called me, you know, discovered its true nature is uh, just so unique, really, for everyone and yet universal. You know, one of, one of my teachers is Kyle Cease. He's a retired comic. And it's just so perfect because I know through my evolution, I've taken myself so seriously, particularly in the beginning. And to have one of my meditation teachers, besides Thomas Hugel, Kyle Cease, it's, it's so delightful to be with a comic who's on the path. <laughs> well, this is it. It's like the joke is on us. You know, yeah. th this has been you know, the revelations, the recognition is just like a huge relief and sense of uh, laughter at oneself or taking oneself seriously. We, we take ourselves more and more lightly and yet there's such a preciousness to life, um, this life and, and the remainder of life that just continues to unfold just in the immediacy of whatever simple moment we're in. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah, to hold to hold ourselves lightly and and to like, take life as a, a really precious gift is has been wonderful. You know the the evolution and the stops and you know major teachers and things along the way to get to mm -hmm. where you are now. Yeah. Well, there were kind of spontaneous hints when I was a boy and between ten and thirteen, and I would uh, before falling asleep often feel a sense of infin infinity, both as spacious and as a condensed form, as formless in form. It was very interesting uh, years later when I was reading the Yoga Sutras by Patanjali to see there was a particular sutra that described this experience of, you know, feeling infinitely large and infinitely small. But of course, I had no background at that time and kept the experiences to myself until uh, the onslaught of hormones at age 13 and and uh, a reorientation of attention from inner to outer. Um, yeah, there, 
when I heard a recording of Ravi Shankar, uh, something just lit up, just hearing that, that profound meditative music. And, and uh, <clears throat> uh, I began reading Indian spirituality when I got in college, started TM, uh, and then tapped back into that sense of infinity. Um, and um, dabbled a little bit in psychedelics and that kind of confirmed what I was looking towards, towards, but also that that wasn't my path. And so um, I was briefly a TM teacher and left that. I uh, was called to India to spend time with um, uh, a powerful teacher, now controversial, Sai Baba, in 78 and 80. And that was a deep dive into kind of traditional Indian devotional spirituality. And um, I was reading Ramana Maharshi, um, whose eyes were just luminous and just there was something there, but I couldn't decode his teaching, his self-inquiry, and um, it was still beyond my understanding. But in 1981, um, <clears throat> I had a dream of this sage in India who, uh, it was a lucid dream. Uh, it was said in Bombay, and, and I was standing outside his window, and he came up to me, and he said, um, uh, you can be my translator. It was kind of telepathic communication. And I looked into his eyes and there was just, there was that infinity again. And he came out and he, he came outside and he said, I know you're a devotee of Sai Baba, but you can spend some time with me. I had no idea who it was, but I asked my housemate, who, you know, you visited a sage, didn't you, this past year or last year? Who was that? And he said, oh, Nisargadatta Maharaj. And I said, do you have a picture of him? And he showed me, and it was like, that's who it was. That's who came in the dream. So this was a turning point for me. I began reading I Am That, um, mm -hmm. which remains really, you know, one of my favorite uh, favorites in spiritual literature. You know, we had dialogues with Westerners in the 70s and really oriented me towards self-inquiry. Um, so that was quite an important turn. I realized that I was projecting myself onto the teacher in um, with Sai Baba, and there was just a whole turning of attention inward. Um, and two years later, uh, I met Jean Klein, who was a master of Advaita Vedanta, a European master. He was in the Bay Area in Sausalito. And I walked into the room, and I didn't even see him. The silence, the presence was so profound. Um, <clears throat> I was immediately struck. And at the end of a talk, little of which I understood, I went up and to his assistant and said, how do I become a student? It's like I'd met my teacher. It was very interesting. Wow. So I studied with Jean. Uh, he was Hungarian, wasn't he? Or uh, Czech, yeah. Czech, Czechoslovakian. Yeah, Czechoslovakian. And he had, he had studied as a musicologist at the University of Vienna and then a medical doctor at the University of Berlin, uh, fled when the Nazis took over went to France, changed his name from Jean de Jean, uh, served in the Foreign Legion, French Foreign Legion, uh, was in the French underground in World War II, smuggling Jews into Switzerland, wow. at great risk to his life. Uh, went to India uh, in the late 40s and early 50s, met his teacher, had a profound series of awakenings, came back to Europe in 1960, and began coming to California 20 years later, which is when I met him. And just, I felt a profound resonance with Jean, and uh, I was so happy to meet, you know, my teacher, who I didn't even know I had wanted a teacher until my mid-20s, and then it just arose spontaneously. So uh, Jean was a very important um, factor in my deepening of my understanding. He stopped teaching in the mid-90s, uh, had a series of strokes, and passed away in 98. And a year later, I met Adyashanti. I went to one of his talks in Oakland, and I thought, darn, here is the same presence, very different packaging, you know, yeah. instead, instead of a kind of a formal European gentleman, here's this South Bay, you know, very casual, um, in some ways brash uh, teacher at the time. But I was, I was struck that it was the same quality of presence. And I went on a retreat with Adya in 2001 and it had a profound opening. Um, sense of I had many several glimpses with Jean mm -hmm. and then a real uh, awakening with Adya on my first retreat so I that spent was a beautiful um, intro he wrote to your book too yeah really yeah it was yeah yeah I'm, I'm very touched 
So I, I studied for about five years intensively with Adya. I did pretty much every retreat on, on California. And that catalyzed a series of deepenings um, of these openings. And in 2006, I was no longer called to go. It was interesting. It was just like, you know, I, my mind was confused. Why am I not going? But inwardly, there was a sense that I had learned what I needed to with Adya. So, um, you know, those are kind of the kind of the main points, I think. And then I've been, uh, I was co-leading some retreats with my friend and colleague, Dorothy Hunt who had been asked by Ajay to teach. And um, after several years, she invited me to do the same. And so I've been leading retreats and, um, and my wife, Christiane, joins me. She is also a student of Jean Klein and offers his body approach or yoga. Which She's is, a yogini, isn't she? She is, yeah. Yeah, she loves it. She's actually doing a class right now in the other part of the house. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's beautiful to yeah. offer you know, this understanding with the somatic aspect you know, the deep felt sensing of the understanding. And she offers that uh, as a complementary approach. And so, yeah, I've been doing more retreats and I continue as a therapist, uh, working a couple of days a week, but most of my clients are deep into the awakening process and working with their conditioning. And I think this is a really important area that's just growing. We're going to understand as people are deep in the awakening process, they, they have to face their conditioned body minds and, trauma, developmental trauma, and uh, attachment issues. And uh, very often teachers really don't know how to help their students navigate that. I don't know if you noticed, but it was so good I had to purchase it. Thomas did a uh, summit on collective trauma. I heard about it. Uh, excellent. Just yeah. excellent. Uh, yeah. It was nine days of speakers, and mm-hmm. um, I, I highly recommend it. And we're talking about the body now. Of course, trauma is very related to to bodily things. But I want to talk about first, maybe, your take on the heart. Now, I've never heard anyone speak exactly the way you do as the heart. I mean, yes, it's not a pump. But when people talk about going from the head to the heart, Mm. you talk about the back of the heart a lot and the Mm. different levels, Mm. the three levels of the heart, Mm. uh, heart consciousness. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could share a little bit about that. Yeah, I realize this is a little unusual and maybe new. Um, it comes from, you know, my my intimate work with people, both uh, one-on-one and in group. And and for whatever reason, I've developed an unusual sensitivity um, emotionally and energetically when I work with people. So I can sense actually un- an unfolding awareness and how it impacts the body. And so... It's been very interesting to sit with people as they've um, gone through their, you know, initial maybe armoring and inability to feel anything in the heart area, that is to say the center of the chest, and then begin to open to their conditioning and often their wounding and deficits that they experienced as children. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to, which is, uh, I would call the egoic level and a level where the inner child um, the wounded child, the vulnerable child, and then the innocent child, the magical child. And as you get to that, we're getting back. There's a, there's a, a deepening, actually, of sensitivity into the heart area. So we're going from a more outer layer to uh, an inner layer. And attention is actually going back, dropping back into the heart area. And when people get into, like, deep grief, you know, loss of a loved one, a parent, or whatever in childhood, There's just a deep ache that's felt, you know, a heartache or a heartbreak, not only as adults or adolescents, but as children. There's a sense of it being layered even more deeply uh, and attachment issues and trauma and so on. And then prior to that, there's this beautiful innocence, you know, that we all have that's inherent to our nature, sometimes called the the magical child. And just, um, you know, a sense of wonder sense of innocence and now we're we're entering really the soul dimension and this is an area of tremendous intimacy um, between people it's really the deepest level of personal intimacy it's an area of the archetype where we're tapping into these greater forces that can move through us as um, creative forces as well Um, when you're talking about the soul are you talking about the essence of the person yes 
primarily yeah. how you describe that? Yeah, I would call it the essence of the person, something, a deep characteristic. And, and when people are in touch with that, there's a sense of really um, being in touch with their dharma, you know, small d dharma. They're doing their life's work. They're, they're feeling well used. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there is an innocence. There yeah. is an innocence in that, a sweet, a sweetness. Very sweet, very tender, very intimate. Uh, and, you know, when we talk about soulmates, I think this is a level, and it could be friendships, it could be an erotic relationship, it can be student-teacher relationship, whatever. But there's a sense of being, communing on a deeply personal level when we meet another in this way. It's, it's extraordinarily sweet and very nurturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, deeply touching i think it's rumi and shams there you go (laughs) rumi and shams that that would be a perfect example of that yeah you know and if we think of people in our life which with whom we feel deeply connected regardless of you know if we're in contact with them that often or even you know they may no longer even be alive but we feel that profound connection and what's interesting is we can keep going you know often many Many teachings and programs kind of aim for this soul level of, um, you know, contact and awakening. But there's a deeper level still. Would you say at that recognition, John, I'm sorry to interrupt, but would you say at that place, when you start to recognize that, it's really easy to fall back into a kind of egoic arrogance that I've made it. Yes. Which is really disgusting in some teachers. For me, it's like, you know, I'm here and maybe someday you'll get to where I am. Exactly. You talk about that because I've I've seen that in a number of well-known people, even that have been on my show, uh, that it kind of goes, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. Absolutely. Well, this is the danger, actually, is you get identified with this level and there's a narcissistic inflation, Mm -hmm. right? And so a sense of grandiosity, a sense of specialness, a sense of I, I'm the enlightened one and you're not, mm-hmm. or I know and you don't. And, but if you hang out with me, <laughs> you'll get it maybe, <laughs> right? If I'm, if I'm generous a, or in a good mood. There's this kind of way of being too. It's, it's very like, mm. yeah, that's right. <laughs> a, a little too holy, right? <laughs> So we need, we need some irreverence here, uh, some, right. some lightness. So again, I go the comedians, you know. <laughs> right, right. So this is, this is spiritual ego is what yeah. it is. And a lot of people get stuck here. And, you know, it's kind of understandable. You can get stuck at different levels. And, and this one is um, because it's less frequented. You know, there can be a sense of special. And I, I am the best whatever, you know teacher so that's one obstacle mm-hmm. of course you haven't gotten to the third level yet but after you get to the third level let's talk about the obstacles on the spiritual path because there sure. are many many uh, rocks in the road so to speak yeah 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 so that's a real obstacle is to think you've made it to think this is it these particular qualities that i may be feeling you know a flow state a sense of bliss um, anything but these are byproducts this is one of the, you know, this is byproducts of actually um, the ground of being. Mm-hmm. And it's important not to get too attached to them. Uh, and that's why it's important to kind of keep, you know, keep going. Otherwise, the ego will take hold of it and, and turn ourselves into, you know, something special and create separation, mm-hmm. right? And I think the point here is to go beyond separation, to really discover the undivided nature of reality and to to live from that knowing this is something i talk a lot with people on the show about is the myth of separation um because from my perspective anyway all suffering comes from that you know that there there is physical suffering people starving and that that's a different level but all emotional suffering comes from this myth of I'm here in what Alan Watts used to call skin encapsulated ego. That's right. And, and you're over there and we're objects in a world of objects, the mechanistic viewpoint. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. This is really the, the root of suffering. Our deepest suffering is the sense of being a separate self. Yeah. And it's very compelling, right? 
very, very compelling. Then the truth self, no self. Let's talk about that. <laughs> okay. Well, we keep going, you know, and this is the beauty of, it's like the, the back of the heart and, and it's as if the heart is a portal, right? And that's one of the door, one of the metaphors that I use. And, and it feels like the back of the heart opens and we're, we, it's a falling back experience into something unfathomably deep and vast and infinite. It has a universal feel to it. And there's a quality of unconditional love. Like there are just no bargains here. There's no, uh, you know, I'll love you if, or I'll love you when. It's just love radiating out, meeting itself. And there's a record as the heart really, the depths, the true depth of the heart awakens. We, we recognize two things. One is our inherent wholeness, that despite whatever flaws and limitations we have as human beings, we are essentially whole. And this is not a philosophy. I mean, it's a great philosophy, but this is not a philosophy. It's an experiential discovery, and it's an enormous relief to discover this, to discover our inherent sense of wholeness. It frees us from our self-improvement project. And it doesn't mean that we're not interested in our, working with our conditioning, curious and affectionate with it, but we're no longer trying to be a better person. And um, so there's enormous freedom in that. And then there's also, the, there's, and for me, I hadn't recognized this until I went through it. In addition to recognizing our wholeness, we recognize our non-separateness from the so-called world. And this, this was like a huge revelation for me to... Uh, for this to arise experientially. It was like a question I was working with is like, even though I am whole, there seems to be a separate world, you know, and, and is it truly separate? That was my inquiry. I was just sitting with that question. Great inquiry. You know, is it truly separate? Am I truly separate from what is? And at some point there was the recognition that it wasn't. And it was literally jaw dropping for me, my, my jaw just like fell open in, in recognizing what seems the greatest open secret uh, that's available as our fundamental non-undivided nature with the whole of life. I'm talking to John Pendergast about the deep heart, our portal to presence. I love your process that you talk about in the book of dropping a question in before you start your meditation. Now, I, you know, we did this in the Ridwan school years ago, but it was repeating question. But you're, you like that question, you know, uh, just drop it in like um, dropping it into water and just letting it permeate your meditation. I found that I, I tried it and I found it very powerful. Well, this is heartfelt meditative inquiry. And um, it's an important part of, you know, my approach actually, and sharing with people is to, to learn to, to pose and live with a question. Yeah. Um, and just briefly to address that, it's, we, we bring it, first of all, the, the first point is, do we really want to know the truth? And that's a very important question to, to begin with, because often we're ambivalent. You know, we do as long as it is comfortable or, you know, we discover what we want to discover. So it's interesting to be honest about in this process of inquiry, which is very important. I really want to know the truth and then clarify what our question may be. Like, what is it that I really want to know about myself, about life and make it as clear as possible and then bring attention down to the heart area. Kind of as we did, you know, in the kind of the very beginning, just quietly centering in the heart, we can put our hand over our uh, mid chest if we want. Mm -hmm. And then just posing the question and letting it go and uh, not going to the mind for an answer, which is what we usually do. You know, when we, when we have a question, we think about it, but our thinking is usually the problem, right? So we let, we let it uh, work on us, and knowing that there's no correct answer, too. There's, there's not a yes or a no. We're, we're entering actually into a dialogue with our heart wisdom, our deeper knowing. So a response will come, very often surprising and as a felt sense, in the body sometimes, you know, a holistic sense of the truth. It may be an image, it may be a feeling, maybe a sensation. And then to really let it in, often we'll dismiss it. It's like, that's too easy, or, you know, it came too quickly, or 
that's a cliche, but there's a reason we have cliches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Letting it in is very important too. Yeah. Yes. And that, that's actually where, what I was just going to expand on that. So it can sound like this, these levels of the heart awareness, the egoic, the soul, and the no self, true self oh. uh, level, like it's a progression to get somewhere. But it's more allowing the obstacles to, by, by being with the, the obstacles, the traumas, all of that, that we open to what's there. Yes. I had a great realization recently. I'm amazed it took me so long to have it, but you have it when it's time. But I've always walked very fast. And when people walk with me, they go, hey, slow down, you know, and I'm like off like that. And I, I, I meditated on that. And what I realized was that it was, a, it was a sign in so many other areas of my life of here is not it. That I need to get there because that's it. And I don't this think is, that's uncommon. I mean, but it took me a long oh, time to just realize that. <laughs> uh, this is a great insight. And, and uh, I came across it myself some years ago. Uh, I don't remember when, but it, it was, it's a very, very important insight. We think that this is not it, that it's, it's out there somewhere else and someone else, right? And sometimes someone else, right? But it's not here, it's not now, and it's not me. It's certainly not me. <laughs> and when we see that, right, our kind of rushing through life uh, changes, you know? We actually start, it's a slowing down, a recognition. Oh, this, this very ordinary moment, this very ordinary person, this is the fullness of life. Mm -hmm. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Let's talk about core beliefs. I want to make sure we look at that. So, you know, a lot of us, you know, my background a little bit, it was a lot of early trauma and early conditioning from two on, uh, or before that, actually. And that sets up beliefs. And, and most of us have, I think, a, a core belief. Mine is that I'm unlovable and the world is dangerous, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's nothing to do but notice that when it comes up, really. But, but these core beliefs and limiting stories, how they shape our world, and keep us from dropping into that heart space you're talking about. Oh. Um, so talk about that and also the relationship within that of the heart and the hara and the head as mm -hmm. a system rather mm -hmm. than individual parts. Right, right. And you were kind of alluding to this before in terms of the different levels and not happening in a linear way. Right. So just to comment about that, it's like, even though I'm kind of making these distinctions of level of the heart, and in the book, I talk about the head, the heart, and the hara, the, the process of unfold, unfolding is so fluid and intuitive and in some ways complex, certainly to the ordinary mind, mm -hmm. um, that we need to bow down to that, you know, that we don't know how this is supposed to unfold. Mm -hmm. So to the point of core limiting beliefs, you know, and this is... Um, uh, something I ac I've accented in both of my books. Um, they have a profound effect on on how we relate to others and in our work and how we take care of ourselves. And they're basically operating systems that uh, are happening largely on a subconscious level. So let's say I have the belief I'm unlovable. You know that's going to be operating in the background and it's going to be uh, influencing you know our choices of partners and and friends and how we move in the world, particularly if we feel the world is a dangerous place. So it's one thing to notice and, that. I just want to add to that. And if you have that belief, you're going to be calling that in to, to be congruent with the belief. Right. You, you will shape reality uh, right. to fit yeah. your belief. That's what we do. And we'll discard the evidence that contradicts it. Doesn't matter the evidence. <laughs> Doesn't matter. So we're, we're in a room with 100 people and 99 say they love us and one is bored and looking at their smartphone, that's the one we pay attention to. <laughs> I, I mentioned that example because when I was teaching at CIS, I, uh, my classes were not 100, they were more like 20. 
but I would, I would tend to focus on the student who wasn't paying attention. <laughs> and I got curious about that. You know, I got in touch with a, you know, a similar belief in myself. So the thing is, it's one thing, it's very useful to be aware of these beliefs and, and to be aware of the impact of these beliefs. But it's also very important to inquire into their truth mm-hmm. and to do that from our deepest knowing because they do impact. They impact our thinking. They impact our deep feeling and sense of self and, and uh, they impact our guts as well. So, you know, that's why I use that process of meditative inquiry to actually do a deconstructive inquiry. Yeah. These beliefs. And so we take the thought, I'm unlovable and bring attention to the heart, heart area and ask ourselves, what is my deepest knowing? about this and i do this in all my retreats and it's often you know the most powerful inquiry that people do because it this is the glue of the separate self right this is what keeps us stuck in a sense of separation a very important part not the only but these core limiting beliefs um, have enormous power and and um, we will encounter them uh, when we're exploring the depths of the heart area and often working with the, our childhood experience as well. So yeah, it's a very important part of this, um, of a natural unfolding of integration, I would say. And, and so the head, heart, and hara, these are like the three, I would say, main portals, uh, easiest accessible portals to our true nature. When the mind is illumined, we have a sense of tremendous freedom and infinite space. And you'll see those kind, that kind of languaging and imagery with certain teachers and teaching. Freedom is emphasized, space is emphasized, sense of the infinite. When the heart awakens, there is a sense of um, love, really, non-separation, gratitude. And, and the hara is stability, a deep sense of groundedness, regardless of what's going on in our life. And they all work in, in a very fluid and interactive way. So with a heart opening, for instance, it requires that we have clarity of mind, that we not get hooked into our stories and our identities for attention to drop down into the heart. And for it to remain there in a stable way, we have to feel a sense of safety, uh, relative safety in the world. And now we're into the hara and, and our, our experience of um, safety or unsafety and survival and power dynamics and things of that sort. So many people are disembodied. You know, I always think of the James Joyce, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Um, Mr. Duffy uh, and most people, yeah. And most people, right. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. I I love that you're looking at the somatic aspects of it. Um, I think you talk about chronic somatic contractions, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a contraction when we're, when we're confused, when we're actually not in touch with our true nature. Um, like, you know, when we believe that we're unlovable or even separate, the result in the body is a contraction. It may be subtle, it may be pronounced, um, it, it can shift at times, but we feel it um, as we sense our body. So um, most of us are... You know, I mean, if we've been traumatized, we tend to dissociate and stay on the surface of our body in terms of sensitivity or actually a short distance from it. Um, as we begin to um, feel better about, about ourselves and have greater sense, worth, a sense of self-worth and we're more in touch with ourselves, we feel ourselves entering into the body and more, more in the body. And then something else, a whole other phase opens up when we actually open to our true nature. And we actually deepen into the body and we have a feeling of the body. We realize the body is not what I think it is. The body opens up. It feels much more spacious and feels like a field of vibration. And, it, and as it continues to open, we, we feel that it's a non-separate field of vibration. So it's very interesting to feel as we recognize who we really are, there's a sense of being here more and more. It's like really being here the completeness, the wholeness of being here, but we're not um, stuck, you know, in the body. We're not, we, we're here, but the embodiment is more than the physical body. We feel connected, profoundly connected to subtle dimensions of the body and, and to what we call the world. Yeah. Just to go back to something you said about the 
the questioning and the inquiry. Uh, I think it's important to say that inquiry has nothing to do with fixing. It's Correct. in fact quite the opposite. It's the complete allowing and embracing uh, that, um, what is it Thomas call, has a great term for it. Oh, your childhood friends, he calls it. <laughs> I love that, you know. Yeah, um, yeah, talk about nice. that work with the inner child, because you mentioned it in your book. Mm -hmm. and talk about it. It's mm -hmm. such an important thing. Yeah, uh, this, is the, this is the theme of the importance of our motive when, yeah. we, when we approach our interior experience. Is our motive to change or fix ourselves? You know, or is our, is our motive actually curiosity and affection mm -hmm. to become more intimate? With our experience this is a very important checking question like am i willing to accept my experience just as it is even if it never changes right it's yeah. a good clarifying question about how we approach our inner experience and and if i can't as a separate self you know accept my experience just as it is even if it never changes is there something in me that does mm -hmm. and can i tap into that right now so in other words, our true nature doesn't need to fix or change anything. Although it's opening, it's open to things unfolding. And if we approach our experience, so-called outer or inner, with this kind of innocence, with affectionate, curious attention, it, has a, it provides an optimal environment for it to unfold at its own time and in its own way, much more naturally. And so one of the... One of the principles talking about kind of our inner children as friends um, is, you know, when we invite them in for a conversation, not to be wanting to invite them out the back door. <laughs> yeah. we, we take the timer off the table, right? Right. We're, we're really open to the conversation, to really getting to know these parts. And these parts are waiting to be received with love and understanding, right? And, and when that. they are, when they are, they can begin to develop. That's the beauty of it. It's mm -hmm. like the children, these inner children live in their own compartments. The parts live compartmentalized and they're frozen in time, little time capsules. Mm -hmm. And often they feel left behind and they have been left behind, you know, as we need to get on with our lives and adapt. Um, and then as adults, we realize, oh, wow, I've left some important parts of myself behind. And, and a reconciliation process unfolds and a truth and reconciliation process. But this time, you know, internally. So we, we get to hear the truth of their experience and they get to hear the truth of our understanding as an adult. And between that, there's a natural process of unfolding and integration that happens. Yeah. Key word there, our understanding. I love that. Um, I was, I did, I think it was two years ago, did a 10-day uh, vision quest in the Gila wilderness with my friend Sparrow Hart. I don't know if you know Sparrow, but mm -hmm. wonderful vision quest leader. Um, and really got, to, got deep to make friends with those childhood heroes at that point. And it's made a profound difference ever since. It's been, there's an awareness there of, there's a wounding, I need to go love somebody in one of those compartments there, you know, mm. that, that that's there to do. Yes. And, and I, I want to talk a little bit about having a meditation practice because so many people tell me, how do you have time? You know, I meditate basically an hour or two a day. How do you have time to do that? And I think, well, how do you have time not to do that? Mm. But um, just to go back to what you said a minute ago, there was something you said in the book around that, that was having, when you're in a meditation practice, having clarity of intention and quality of attention. Okay. I love that. Mm -hmm. uh, can you expand on that as a way of opening us to starting a practice? I really would love all of our listeners to, whether it's five minutes or two hours a day to, to practice, you know, to have a practice because otherwise you don't go to these places. Yeah. I, I look at practice as a, a process of investigation mm -hmm. and, and therefore our intention is important. What is it that we want to know in our investigation? Mm -hmm. Right. And if, if we're just wanting to say, be less, a less anxious person or to sleep better, 
that is to have some relative benefit, then, you know, there are certain practices that are geared towards that and have their value. So, you know, all practices have their value. Uh, if we're interested, as I am, in really knowing who I am, um, that's a different intention. And that will, that um, clarity of intention will affect the quality of our attention, how deeply actually uh, we're willing and able to be intimate with our experience. So, so for me, it's, it's an investigation, uh, practices and investigation to discover who I really am. Who or what am I really? What is this, you know, that we take to be real? What is the true nature of this? So this has been, I don't know, this, this has been my question, I think, from early on. It was mixed at first. I had a desire to be less anxious as a person, but uh, it clarified. It's like, I really want to know what's true about myself and about the world. And, and uh, that led to, a pra- you know, the practice of really... Um, deeply opening to silence and uh, and creating space for that to happen and deeply inquiring into the truth of all my beliefs. In other words, to be willing to unlearn everything that was untrue and allow something different and prior to emerge in my understanding and experience. So I think, you know, I think practice is, uh, so I was, I had a formal practice for many years and then it became less formal. Uh, I realized that, well, uh, it's good to sit. Um, it, you know, my mind got quieter. My body got more relaxed. There were clear benefits of that. Um, but um, the, the inquiry, the meditation was beyond formal sitting. It was really in my life and in my experience as well. So there's formal and informal practice. But I think um, our, our interest, our motive is really important. And and once we have a kind of clear motive, then we'll make the space. You know, we'll, we'll find time in the morning, maybe 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes to sit in silence and um, give ourselves to that. I just want to tell our listeners, if you just tuned in, I'm talking to John Pendergast about the deep heart, our portal to presence and a wonderful new book. And we're talking about... Uh, what are we talking about? Presence and mindfulness and living from the heart and being honest and vulnerable and compassionate towards ourself. Yeah. What, what would well, you add? Well, there, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you just spoke from your heart, didn't you? Right. It's very interesting, you know, to say, what are we talking about? I don't know. Right. To be willing to not know. That's yes. good. Yes. And then something emerged, right? Talking about presence, talking about compassion and self-acceptance. And, and uh, of course, all our relationships with others depend on that quality of relationship with ourself. And, and um, you know, I think we all deeply want to be, to live from our hearts, from the depths of our hearts to, mm-hmm. to, at the end of our life, be able to say, I loved well, you know, I love deeply. To feel a sense of gratitude for you know the simplicity of what life offers and and appreciation for you know our lives i i think john that one of the biggest obstacles for people and you write about this is the the need to be in control as if there were a right way yeah even perfectionism is a need to be in control absolutely and and as if there's a right way so we are looking as though there's an objective world out there and I'm somehow going to be able to describe the out there world rather than recognizing that it's a subjective world and actually the in here is shaping the out here. That's a big shift for people, but it starts with letting go of control. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the issue of control is central and seeing how limited our control really is and beginning to relax around that. I mean, our minds are very oriented towards trying to know, to um, decode patterns and envision possibilities in order to navigate the objective world and survive. And so um, implicitly and often explicitly control is an issue. So to not know is very frightening to the mind and because it feels like I'm out of control. But actually in this inquiry, we discover the opposite, <laughs> you know, that all of this controlling is actually uh, gets in the way, is obstructive, 
and that as we as we trust a, di- a different kind of knowing, as we're willing to not know ordinarily, um, there's a shift and, and a more intuitive and direct knowing begins to bubble up in our experience and we begin to follow that and we discover actually it's a beautiful guide in our lives and, and we discover that um, there's something else actually running the show. It's not the little me, <laughs> it's not the little mind. And um, so trust unfolds. Yeah. And we, we shift operating systems, really, from ordinary strategic mind, from being that primary, that becomes secondary. And primary becomes this inner knowing, or what I call heart wisdom. It really leads also to that question that led you on your journey is what's true? Because oh. it really starts to shake things up when you recognize the, in this world, <laughs> true is uh, somehow doesn't even fit. It's like, you know, everything can be questioned to be in the infinite consciousness or infinite mind is a different, different truth than, you know, it's a nice day. All the subjective statements that we make all day, uh, what we like, what we don't like, all of that. And, and I think, you know, many people want to try get a book on meditation. And by the way, I highly recommend your book. Want to get a book on meditation and just do it themselves. I think often men are more that way than women. Yeah, so yeah I, think, I think so. But talk about finding a teacher because when you described that, I thought it was great. I need a teacher. It, it wasn't something that was on your mind. And then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. you know, it, it arose. Yeah. It yeah. arose from someplace deep inside and quite surprising to my mind because I, I was very much in that kind of, you know, I'll do it myself. You know, I give me a technique, give me a tool, you know, and I will apply the tool and, and attain something or other and whatever I imagine a state of consciousness, for instance. And certainly I don't need a teacher. The role of the teacher is, is actually quite an interesting subject because um, the so-called teacher, first of all, it is a role. Um, and it's a, I see it as a provisional role, a temporary role. And, and the function of the teacher, the so-called outer teacher, is really point, to point the student to their inner teacher. That's what it's all about. And a really good teacher does that. An outer teacher is in touch with their inner teacher, their inner knowing. And they're able to point that out in their so-called student. And when the student gets it, uh, job's done, you know. It's yes, like a bow. Are like ladders. Yeah. You know? That's right. <laughs> yeah, they, they, help, they, they help in that transition yeah. um, to recognize, to sort out, you know, what's noise and what's signal. And once we get the signal, right, we don't need someone to point it out. And we feel grateful but you know, we're not dependent on them. So that's why it's, it's, um, I see it as a role, a useful role uh, for most people. Now there's some people who don't need teachers or we can say life is the teacher and all relationships are the teacher. And that's true as a kind of general proposition. And I have found, however, that certainly for me, having guides along the way who were in integrity who really were interested in my own autonomy and independence. That's a very important point, not interested in making me dependent, but actually empowering me in terms of my own self-recognition was a crucial, crucial asset, a crucial catalyst, if you will. Um, And I, I feel profound gratitude for my teachers, uh, um, my two main teachers, Jean Klein and, and Adia. Um, But there's kind of an inner sense of friendship now, you know, I, there's a, a recognition that, you know, they, they shared what, what they were in touch with and that helped me be in touch with that in myself. I had a teacher one time years ago, I asked probably a very stupid question. I don't even remember what the question was. And he turned to me and said, I'm not your mother. <laughs> and it was devastating, but it was really freeing at the same time, you know. Well, there you go. How yeah. rude is that? And then I was like, well, I guess I can figure that out for myself, huh? <laughs> That's right. And it, also, and it also speaks to how frequent transference is mm-hmm. in the student. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Is that we come, very often we come to our teachers um, with unresolved psychological issues, looking to be reparented, you know, looking yeah. for a good mom and a good dad to kind of help us and 
you know, support us and maybe embrace us and, you know, soothe us. And, um, you know, that's not the role of a teacher, but that comes up and it can be disappointing uh, and empowering for students to work that through. I, you know, I, I worked through some father transference issues uh, with my, with Jean Klein in particular um, mm -hmm. and came to a place, you know, more and more clarity about that. So that's often part of the process is, yeah. And that's why it's important, actually, for teachers to have some understanding of this phenomena of transference and, yeah. and rather than just rejecting it uh, or not understanding it or shaming their students, actually help them see it and see through it. Yeah. But then I'm trained as a therapist, so. <laughs> <laughs> Good combination. Right. John, I hate to say it, but we're running out of time. So many more things to talk about. We may have to do a second session here or something, but it just... Anything that you want to share that's happening with you? You're doing a lot of retreats and things. Yeah. Well, I mean, people can go to my website, uh, listeningfromsilence.com, and I have a public events page. And so I'm offering a retreat this January in Mill Valley on the side of Mount Tam. And uh, I'll be up in um, Portland and Bozeman and um, off to Europe. And anyway, I, I do offer some online things through Open Circle and uh, webinars through various organizations. So yeah, people are interested. They're, they're on the side of Mount Tam. I may have to get those dates and figure out and come down for that. It's, one. it's wonderful. It's uh it's amidst the redwoods and there's a stream that comes down and can when I, an artist friend of mine, when I left Marin County years ago, I always, I had several houses and I always had a view of Mount Tam and, and I had a nine foot by three foot painting of Mount Tam that I took. I took the mountain with me. In the uh, well, there you go. <laughs> That's your Arunachala. <laughs> yeah. Many blessings. Thank you for all of our listeners for the great work you're doing. We're now on all the podcasts. So if you missed part of this, you can go listen to Michael Stone and guests. And it's really fun to be out on the podcasts and get people and, oh. and write uh, descriptions and things. We just, just did this and it's a great, change for us so so john pendergast wonderful to be with you thank you a real pleasure real pleasure michael thank you conversations is an independently produced program supported by kvmr 89.5 nevada city and listener contributions we are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.